1: Visit com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., Copyright 2024. Hello, and coming up on today's show, the exciting new plans for the successor to the Large Hadron Collider.
2: You need to fundamentally design new science and new physics to do the actual experiment. So we've got 30 or 40 years before this thing's actually built and another five or six years before it's even approved. The challenge of quickly making vaccines
1: for yet unknown pathogens.
0: Once we've proved that these new systems work, at that point, if a disease comes along that we've never seen before, we could, in theory, produce a sort of a vaccine for trial very quickly.
1: And how two new letters may help us create new drugs... Researchers have been trying to
3: modify interleukin-2 in order to create a version that would have all of the benefits and none of the costs.
1: I'm Kenneth Couquier, a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage. First, CERN has just published its ideas for its successor to the Large Hadron Collider, given the working name Future Circular Collider, or FCC. It aims to be four times the size and 10 times as powerful. To discuss these plans and why the current Large Hadron Collider needs replacing, I'm joined by Alok Ja, the science correspondent for The Economist. Hello, Alok. Hi, Ken. So tell me, why does it need upgrading?
2: So the Large Hadron Collider has been going great guns for the last few years. It discovered the Higgs boson in 2012, which was kind of one of the first things it was meant to do uh, to discover new physics. And since then, it's kind of not discovered anything else. It's done a lot of collisions. It's got really good at finding Higgs's and understanding what they are. But we really want particle physics to find the next new particle, the next new force, because there's a huge question that particle physicists and cosmologists are trying to answer, which is that uh, they have this thing called the Standard Model, Of particle physics which was created over the last 100 years and what that tells you about is all the particles and forces we know exist so electrons gluons etc and this is what stuff is made of and it also tells you how things interact but it's not complete so it doesn't have a theory of gravity in there. And uh, we know that it doesn't include all of the matter and energy in the universe because there's dark energy and there's dark matter. These things exist. They're actually most of the universe and we don't know what they are. So we know the standard model is not complete. So the way we find out what those other things are is to smash particles at higher and higher and higher energies and look at what's inside. And that will tell you what's out there. And so the Large Hadron Collider can do some of that. But the future collider, which you've mentioned, that will hopefully go up to something like 10 times the size. And so what exactly are the plans? So the Large Hadron Collider will probably carry on going for another 20 or so years. I mean, there's lots of life left in that. It's actually shut down at the moment to try and increase its um, energy and its uh, capabilities. But if you want to build one of these things or the next generation, you have to think 20, 30 years in advance because you not only have to design something which um, is feasible scientifically and useful, but then you have to bring on board pretty much every country in the world because these things can't be built by one nation Really, these are international experiments that take lots of political as well as scientific will. And also, you have to basically design completely new materials to make these things function. So the Large Hadron Collider... You know, had to design new, new magnets, uh, superconducting magnets, which had never been done before, which took 20 years of research and development. Had to design new ways of collecting data. So, you know, the web was invented in CERN in 1989 as a way for particle physicists to share information. For the Large Hadron Collider, there was so much data. They invented a different version of the web called the grid, which is about sharing computing power all over the world, which is used for supercomputing and all sorts now. So you you need to fundamentally design new science and new physics to do the actual experiment. So we've got 30 or 40 years before this thing's actually built, and another five or six years before it's even approved.
1: Okay, so we've got big data, big science,
2: big cost. Huge cost. <laughs> I mean, uh, I sort of laughed there because um, it, how long's a piece of string? I've told you that we've got to invent new materials and invent new ways of analysing data. There's probably thousands of scientists in hundreds of countries. So whatever number you have now, multiply it by 10 for what actually it will cost. I think this collider will might cost of the order of 20 or 30 billion euro now. And who knows what the actual cost will be. But, you know, worth every penny.
1: Last week, we covered science in China. And so the question I would pose is, to what degree is this driven by the rivalry between China and the West in terms of who's got the biggest piece of scientific kit?
2: We know that China wants to compete in the the best levels of science all around the world. So there is a plan for a similar 100-kilometer circumference um, particle collider in China. So scientifically, yes, there is a bit of a, a rivalry. But actually, behind the scenes... Scientists collaborate all the time um, with Chinese scientists and Chinese counterparts. If there are security concerns, yes, there are problems. So I don't think there is a rivalry as such, because there will only be one international collider of this sort. There's no point building two. And China might only ever build its own one if it really isn't allowed to be part of the international collaborations. So if you read the documentation around the future collider... They note that the Chinese have already come up with a circular collider of similar size and similar energy to the future collider that CERN has come up with. But they see that as a good thing. They say that that means that this design is a good design. It's that the other scientists have also independently peer-reviewed our design in that way. So I wouldn't say it's competitive. There might are other designs out there for these things with other different scientists. It's not competition with China. It's competition between scientists all over the world. But then once they all decide on one, I think they're going to go for that one.
1: That's great. Look, we're going to have you back on the show in 2040, 2050, when the thing's up and running. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Next up, Disease X. Last year, the World Health Organization published a plan to accelerate research into pathogens that could cause public health emergencies, with one priority being Disease X. The X stands for Unexpected and represents the concern that the next big epidemic might be caused by something currently unknown. Although identifying the pathogens is important, what is also a challenge is creating new vaccines quickly. To discuss this and potential ways the problem is being tackled, I'm joined by Natasha Loader, the Economist Healthcare Editor. Hello, Natasha. Hi, Ken. Natasha, how long does it take to create a vaccine?
0: At the moment, it takes about two to three years to develop a vaccine from scratch. So imagine you uh, discover a pathogen that is worrying a new pathogen. On average, it's going to take about two or three years to get to the point where you have something in a syringe that you can start testing uh, in human trials. The problem with that is that that means that new pathogens, um, emerging pathogens, can cause quite a lot of trouble before we can sort of respond.
1: And why does it take so long?
0: There are a lot of challenges working with live viruses, and it's an old technology as well that hasn't really been optimized for
1: speed. And so how can the process be sped up?
0: Well, if you use a synthetic way of making the vaccine, then that's going to sort of remove the need to have a live virus, and that, which is the sort of laborious part of the process. And there are two technologies that are being funded now that should improve the speed at which we can sort of create these synthetic vaccines. And
1: will it apply for all sorts of diseases where vaccines are useful?
0: So the two groups, uh, you know, they will be developing a few vaccines, say, for example, for um, influenza and one for respiratory synctal virus. Um, But the point is not necessarily that these groups develop a whole range of vaccines at the moment. The point is, is that they prove that they're what they call a platform, which is really just a system, they prove their system can produce vaccines very rapidly, in this case, in only 16 weeks, which is phenomenal. So that's what's happening is is these two new groups are trying to prove that their uh, platforms work.
1: That's so interesting. So what are the ways that they're going to make these vaccines?
0: The group at Imperial are trying to make what's called self-amplifying RNA vaccines. And so if you think about conventional vaccination, you would inject into your body either a little bit of protein from a virus or maybe a weakened virus, um, a whole virus. And then your immune system would sort of make antibodies and that's your vaccine. But you can also get a sort of similar effect if you inject something called RNA, which is like DNA, into the body on its own. And RNA essentially are the instructions for making the protein. So if you put those RNA instructions into the body for the protein, which codes for the bit of the virus, then essentially the vaccine will be made by your own body's cellular machinery, which is pretty cool if you think about it. And then, um, you know, the self-amplifying bit of the vaccine is that along with that bit of RNA code, they a little bit of code that basically makes the RNA self-replicate. The second method from the University of Queensland is a way of synthesizing the proteins that are found on viral particles with really high fidelity. And, you know, when you introduce these proteins into the body, they can get distorted. And the problem with that is, is that if you introduce a protein into the body, and it's not quite the way it would appear if it was on the virus, is you don't raise the right kinds of antibodies. And it, the long and short of it is is your, your vaccine won't work very well. And the University of Queensland has developed something called a molecular clamp, which essentially holds these proteins into the right shape. And so, you know, they stimulate immunity in a better way. So those two technologies that are being developed could both essentially increase the speed at which we can prototype new vaccines. Once we've proved that these new systems work, at that point, if a disease comes along that we've never seen before, we could in theory produce a sort of a vaccine for trial
1: very quickly. This is fabulous. And so if there is another crisis like bird flu or spine flu, perhaps the world has a way of responding quickly.
0: Perhaps. um, We still have to wait for these platforms to prove themselves. And then, you know, there's also a regulatory hurdle. And so... At the moment, the systems we use to create vaccines are all very well established. And the the problem we will have is that while these technologies are what you would call plug and play, in theory, you can just slot in a new sequence of a new virus and then produce a new vaccine in 16 weeks. In practice, the regulatory authorities, in this case, probably the WHO, are going to have to get to the point where they can accept that these platforms are acceptable and a safe and efficacious way of making vaccines. And so once we start seeing vaccines coming out of these new platforms, it will be necessary to kind of put pressure, I think, on the regulatory authorities to sort of uh, accredit these platforms in some way.
1: This is great. The regulation is going to take longer than the vaccines themselves.
0: Not necessarily, Ken. No, not necessarily.
1: Natasha, always great to chat with you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Finally, every living cell on Earth contains DNA that is written with four letters. Mm, But wait, that's not totally correct. Every natural cell on Earth is written with four. But in 2014, we learned that two extra letters, dubbed X and Y, have been created and were slipped into the genome of E. coli. This was done by Floyd Rosenberg and his colleagues at the Scripps Research Institute, and they're using this to create proteins with novel amino acids. The result of this means that today they can use this technique to focus on cancer drugs. To discuss this, I'm joined in the studio by Katrine Braik, one of the science correspondents at The Economist. Hello, Catherine. Hello, Ken. So this sounds like science fiction. How does this technique work?
3: Yeah, it is a kind of science fiction. So as you said... Every form of life on Earth has DNA that's written in four. And this has been true basically since some of the first living molecules arose on the planet four billion years ago. So what's incredibly exciting right now is that for the first time we have living, replicating, functioning cells, organisms that have semi-synthetic DNA. They have an enhanced DNA that is written with six letters instead of four.
1: So this is sort of like... In a Frankenstein way, adding another finger to each hand so I can play Chopin with even greater love and movement because I've got 12 fingers on the keyboard.
3: Sort of. I mean, I'd say it's actually more exciting than that, because all biological information is encoded in DNA. And in a sense, that information is limited by your coding system. So by increasing your coding system, you're increasing the information that you can put in there and you're increasing the range of products that cells can produce. So really what's exciting about this is that DNA genes code for protein and proteins have a limited number of properties. Why? Basically, it's because of the way that proteins are built. So proteins are a string of molecules, a string of building blocks called amino acids. And there are 20 amino acids out there. So a triplet of DNA letters codes for one amino acid. And if you add... Additional letters, that means that you can potentially add additional amino acids. So to explain that slightly better, each triplet of DNA letters codes for one amino acid. Now, with four letters, you can have 64 triplets. With six letters, suddenly you can have 216 triplets.
1: Well, this looks like a little bit like advanced material science, where we're able to create new materials that we weren't able to before by playing around with the periodic table of elements in novel ways.
3: Yes, yes. And that's exactly what's exciting about this. Suddenly, you, the range of biomaterials that you can create is exploded. There's almost seemingly no limit to what can create be so- created.
1: So, Katrine, blow my mind. Tell me about <laughs> all the amazing things that are on scientists' radar screens.
3: So, for now, there's a limited number of people who are who are using this technology. It's patented by the Scripps Research Institute. The patent has been licensed to one company called Synthorax, which is just up the, the road from the Scripps Research Institute in, in La Jolla, California. Um, and what they're focusing on is a cancer drug. In fact, they've got a few in the pipeline, but right now they've they've got a front runner. It's a variant of interleukin-2, which is an important part of the immune system and it plays a role in how our bodies fight tumors. Now, we've been aware of interleukin-2s for decades. They've been of interest to cancer researchers for decades because About Back in the 1980s, there were some initial trials where they were injected directly into the bloodstream of cancer patients, and there was a marked response. The the tumor growth was uh, brought under control. Some patients were even cured. But the problem is, as uh, one of the researchers told me, you had to live to tell the tale. So the toxic consequences of having this molecule injected into your bloodstream were extreme and sometimes lethal. And since then, researchers have been trying to modify interleukin-2 in order to create a version that would have all of the benefits and none of the costs. And that's what these researchers now think that they can do with the new E. coli cell being the factory for the modified interleukin-2. But if we can come back to the wider question, you mentioned biomaterials earlier. Drugs are probably really just one thing that you could do with that. And this is what's being focused on right now. But... The possibilities are enormous. And when I spoke to Floyd about this several years ago when it it was all in development, I was trying to grasp how far we could go. And he said, look, it's an extreme. But imagine you could build a protein that had a semiconductor integrated inside it. So, So one of the amino acids has a completely different physical or chemical property to what's known in life today. That's what we could potentially one day do with this.
1: That's brilliant. Katrine, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Now, I have a small personal plea. For those of you listening, please go to your podcast provider and rate the program. It makes a big difference. More people can find it, and more people can listen. In London, I'm Kenneth Couquier, and this is The Economist.